welcome to this episode of Want to Hear Something Interesting, a podcast where your hosts Scott Ahern and Chad Knight discuss a topic using research and personal opinion. The topics will be wide and varied, but approached with the researcher's eye. Will everything we say be 100% accurate? Probably not, but we are striving to be as accurate as we can be. Every month on the 1st, a new topic will come your way. Occasionally, though not usually, there may be some language of the adult variety. Listener, be warned. Now, here are your hosts, Scott and Chad. Hello, and welcome to Want to Hear Something Interesting, the podcast that talks about stuff we wanted to know more about in the hope that all of you might want to know more about it, too. I'm Scott Ahern, here with my good friend and co-host, Chad Knight. Hey, guys. How's it going? And in this, our fifth episode, we have quite the topic for you. It involves murder, kidnapping, betrayal, poisoning, and the reshaping of a continent. Tonight, we are going to talk about the Mongol Empire. Dun, dun, dun! Most of you are probably already familiar with aspects of the Mongol Empire, especially two of its most famous leaders, Genghis Khan and Kublai Khan. Tonight, we're going to talk about some of the lesser-known aspects of the empire, including how it got its start, and maybe some of the other leaders or important people that popular history and culture seem to forget. We'll also be talking a little bit, little about efforts even today to dig into the truth about some of these pivotal figures. Chad, I think you had wanted to start with a little overview on a timeline of the empire, just to set the stage so everyone can follow. Yeah, exactly. So the Mongol Empire actually spanned from 1206 to 1368. It's also known as Ik Mongol Uls, the Great Mongol State, it was the largest empire in history. It represents the unified conquests of Genghis Khan and his descendants. Although it brought periods of peaceful prosperity to conquered territories, it was also responsible for extremely destructive wars. So this all begins with Genghis Khan. Well, Genghis Khan was not born Genghis Khan. Really? Really. He was born Temujin. He's the son of a Mongol chieftain. He was born in 1162. So this is a little bit before the Mongol Empire actually starts. Right. He marries his first wife, Bort, uh, but she's kidnapped by the Mirkits, a rival tribe. Temujin unites rival tribes under his rule to free Bort. After defeating the Merkits and freeing her, he goes on to defeat other tribes. He institutes policies to support his soldiers rather than the aristocrats. But this brings him into conflicts with his uncles who claim the throne. So right there, that tells you something about Genghis Khan. Before he even becomes the warlord or the overlord, whatever you want to call him, he's not thinking about himself, the aristocrat. He's thinking about the guys that are fighting for him. In 1206, Temujin assumes the title of Genghis Khan. So Temujin becomes the ruler of the Ik Mongol Uls at the Kurulatai, the general assembly of the tribes, and assumes the name Genghis Khan, which means universal leader. Then in 1207, Genghis Khan starts to expand the empire. Khan, pressured by both spiritual needs and scarcity of food, attacks the kingdom of Zaizaya, and I'm probably mispronouncing that, and after two years, he forces it to surrender. Lured by rich rice fields, Genghis Khan then attacks northern China under the Jin dynasty, starting a war that lasts 20 years. 1219, Genghis Khan invades the Khwarezm dynasty. In 1219, Khan leads an army of 200,000 Mongol soldiers against the Khwarezm dynasty in response to the Khwarezm's leader's refusal to cooperate. The Mongols brutally invade every city they come across, killing or enslaving everyone that they, they, they ran into. 
Well, of course, that's a natural response when the neighbors don't cooperate. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like you tell your neighbor, cut down the tree. He says no, so you slash his tires? Sure, why not? <laughs> we'll go with that. You know what I mean? It's it's one of these things, but, I mean, it does say in here, you know, that, yes, he invaded this, but he did try to cooperate with the, the neighbors, so it's not like he's just, he wasn't just bloodthirsty. He wanted to work with you. Right, and that probably goes back to what you were saying earlier, that, he was concerned about his troops. Right. A good general doesn't waste his troops needlessly. Correct. He views the soldiers under his command as an extremely valuable resource. Right. In fact, if you have you ever read The uh, Art of War by yes. Sun, Sun Tzu? Sun Tzu, yes. And he'll say in there, you know, that a battle that is, uh, how did it go? A battle that is avoided is a battle that's won. Yes. So... You know, I don't know, I don't know, Sun Tzu was a long time before Genghis Khan, so maybe he had read some of his works, I don't know. Possible. He's in the right part of the world, Yeah. but then also if you go back to early B.C. years, a lot of the reports are Julius Caesar had the same mentality about his soldiers. Right, and it seems any good general, anybody who's there for their their kingdom as a whole, or their whatever they call it, as a whole, they're more about the people than they are about themselves. It's when you run into people like Nero, who didn't have that mindset, that Correct. Rome started to fall. 1221, the Pax Mongolica begins. The Mongols destroy the Khwarazm dynasty and assume control over their territories. This marks the beginning of the Pax Mongolica, in which the trade centers of China and Europe are connected under Mongol rule, allowing for safe passage. The Mongol law, Yasa, helps create peace in the empire by forbidding blood feuds, adultery, theft, bearing false witness, and doing harm to the environment. Religious freedom is also allowed under the Yasa. Possibly due to the sheer difficulty of requiring such a large empire to unite under one religion. It almost sounds like Genghis Khan was kind of ahead of his time. Quite a bit ahead of his time, and one of the things I'll talk about a little later is how that religious freedom aspect ended up coming back to bite the empire in the butt. Okay. But I mean, just the, the fact that, you know, a lot of this stuff, if you look at this and you're like forbidding blood feuds, adultery, theft, bearing false witness, all these things are tenets of Christianity mm -hmm. long before. I mean, Christianity was around, but it wouldn't have been in that part of the world. So well, it, it depends. When did Marco Polo make his journey? Ooh. I don't know. I don't remember offhand. Listeners, that might be something you could check on. Yeah. Let us know. Yeah. So, also in 1221, the Mongols destroy the Tangut dynasty of Zaizia. Those subjugated under the Mongols, the Tangut dynasty of Zaizia, refused to lend military support to the campaign against the Khwarazm dynasty, instead going into open rebellion. After defeating the Khwarazms, Genghis Khan immediately takes his army back to Zaizia, and begins a string of victories over the Tanguts. After victory, he orders the execution of the Tanguts, thereby putting an end to their dynasty. Well, all the nice things we were just saying about them. <laughs> but, you know, it was it was military. It was not that he did it for the joy of killing people. It had to do with his dynasty and, you know, taking care of his people. Right. So, in 1227, Genghis Khan dies. He dies soon after defeating the Tanguts. Before his death, he bestows leadership on his third son, Ogedai. His younger brother, Tolyu, 
holds the regency for Ogladai until the formal election at the Kirkulatai two years later. He immediately begins to expand and fortify the empire. 1230, war against the Jin dynasty begins. The great Khan Ogadai personally leads his army against the Jin dynasty in China. His general, Subatai, captures the, emperor's, the emperor Wainan's capital city, Kafeng. Three Mongol armies form an alliance with the Song dynasty and finish off the Jin. After the defeat of the Jin dynasty, Ogladai orders the construction of the Tumen Amagalan Ord, the Palace of Myriad Peace, and he turns the city Karakorum into the Mongol capital. From this point, Ogladai's forces continue to push into China, Russia, and Eastern Europe. 1241, Ogladai dies. Ogladai? Ogladai. Ogladi, Oglada. Life goes, goes on. on. Yeah. yeah. All right. So Ogladai dies. Which so obviously his life didn't go on. That's true. So he dies, which forces Batu Khan, Genghis Khan's grandson and leader of the Golden Horde, to withdraw his invasion of Europe, which had reached the Holy Roman Empire. Batu Khan is forced to return for the Kurulatai to select Ogladai's successor, but he refuses, sparking a four-year stalemate. 1246, Guyuk is elected Great Khan. Due to a threat from Genghis Khan's youngest brother, Temuj, Batu finally allies with Gayuk and allows his forces to attend the Kurulatai, which elects Guruk, Guyuk as the next Great Khan. He refutes his mother's policies and punishes her supporters. He continues campaigns to expand into Song China, Iraq, and the Korean Peninsula. So let's just take a break right there and talk about how big the Mongol Empire became. Right. It reached from the Yellow Sea, so Korea, Vietnam, that area. Right. North into Russia, or modern-day Russia. Correct. South, I think, to or into India. Mm-hmm. And as far as the Roman Empire, into Iraq and further at the time. Yes. One report I saw while I was looking stuff up on this had it at just shy of 100 million square kilometers. Okay. That's, I, I can't even fathom that number in my right. head. It, it's essentially the largest contiguous land empire in the history of the world. Right. Let's continue on here. In 1248, Gayuk gathers troops to march westward from Karakarum, but he dies before battle begins. His rival, Batu, calls a Kurulatai in his own territory, which his rivals refuse to attend, and he nominates Manki, a grandson of Genghis Khan. This causes a division in the empire between the descendants of Ogladi on one side and Mangki and the descendants of Genghis's other son, Tolyu, Manki comes to power and institutes a bloody purge of the Ogladai line. So 1258, Baghdad is captured. Under the leadership of Hulagul Khan, Baghdad is besieged and captured in 1258. This represents the fall of the Abbasid Caliphate and opens the way for further conquest into the Middle East. Then on August 11th, 1259, Mangi Khan dies. Mangi Khan, leading an army to complete the invasion of China, is forced to stay through the hot summer due to the protracted campaign. Disease spreads among the army, 
and Monkey catches it and dies. The Mongol forces are again forced to withdraw from their wars of conquest to return for a new Kurulatai to decide on the succession, which weakens their tactical positions. In the Middle East, the Christians and Muslim Mamluks ally and end the Mongol invasion. This sets off a civil war between Arbacu Khan and Kublai Khan. Barbecue Khan? Ark Arkabok. Yes, Barbecue Khan. We'll call him, we'll go with Barbecue because yeah, who doesn't love Barbecue? That's right. Barbecue Khan and Kublai Khan for the right to, to succession. August 21st, 1264, Kublai Khan becomes the Great Khan. After a protracted civil war, Barbecue surrenders to Kublai Khan at Chengdu. This solidifies Kublai Khan's power and allows him to once again begin campaigns of conquest. He finally defeats the Song Dynasty in southern China and puts his own regime in place, called the Yuan. This makes the Mongols the first non-Chinese people to conquer all of China. They took the entire... I mean, and China's huge! Yes. To wrap this up then, in 1368, the Ming Dynasty reclaims China and the Mongol Empire ends. After Kublai Khan, the Mongols disintegrate into competing entities and lose influence, in part due to the outbreak of the Black Death. In 1368, the Ming Dynasty overthrows the Yuan, the Mongols' ruling power, thus signifying the end of the empire. Unlike with uh, Da Vinci, I wanted to keep this a little more high level. Okay. Because I, I understand, after listening to it to myself afterwards, that the in-depth timeline I went with on Da Vinci probably got a little dry at some point. Maybe just a tad. So now, this is where we kind of throw this one at you. I kind of said to you on this one, Scott, I said, you know what? You lead this one. So I did the overview. What do you got for us? Okay. Well, I have some more specific information about a few of the cons, as the rulers of the empire were called. Oh, speaking of cons, and I don't know if you have this in your info, did you know that the term or the, the title of con was used up until 2006 or 2007 was the last Mongol con? I did not, actually. Yeah, I found that when I was doing the research, and I'm like, really? I guess I never realized that, but they used that title up until 2006 or 2007. Okay. Now, see, and to me, whenever I hear the word con, I think of Ricardo Montalban in that Star Wars, or Star Trek episode. Okay. And then, of course, in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Right, right. So, but... All right, go on. Uh, okay. So, the first one that I want to talk about is probably the one most people are familiar with, and you mentioned him, Genghis Khan. Right. Although, and I found this out while watching uh, the Josh Gates show, Expedition Unknown, the proper pronunciation is actually Chinggis, not Genghis. Now, but we're American, so we're right. Well, and <laughs> unfortunately, that seems to be the cause behind it. Yeah, is it is, absolutely. Western scholars attempting to translate the original language that the Mongols spoke mistranslated it or weren't able to wrap their mouths around the syllables that the Mongols were using. Right, because they... So Genghis was easier to say. Mongolian is uh, is a form of Chinese, I would assume, is it not? I would think so, which would mean it, it's not only ideogram-based, but it might also be tonal, meaning you could say the same sound, right? but depending on the way you said it, it would change the meaning. Right. You yep. get that in Chinese, uh, Japanese. Japanese, the Hmong language, 
Vietnamese. to a certain extent in Vietnamese, a little bit in Korean, most of the Asiatic languages. Right. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So Chinggis was originally known as Temujin, as you mentioned, which fans of Alec Baldwin will remember from his movie adaptation of the classic pulp-era hero, The Shadow. Did you ever see that movie? I didn't. It, it's actually not bad. It's early in Alec Baldwin's career. Okay. So, so before he was crazy. Yes. Baldwin's character faces an adversary who claims to be Temujin, the original Khan, who has survived through application of the same mystic arts that the Shadow uses. Essentially what happens is a sarcophagus from the mysterious East has made its way to New York City, and it's believed to be the, the sarcophagus of a significant ruler of the Mongol Empire. Okay. But then at night after it's uncrated and it's just the security guards around, the sarcophagus opens and outsteps Genghis Khan, or Temujin as he insists on being called. You know, and it's funny, movies <laughs> from right up through the 70s even, all they had to do was like hint at the fact that it was from the Far East or even the Middle East, and everybody just bought in. It was like, yep, oh, sure. it, it, it works. Yep. When I saw the episode of Expedition Unknown, it reminded me of the movie, because in this episode, they're looking for Khan's tomb, which, according to legend, was hidden so that it couldn't be robbed, and possibly he would return one day. In the movie, the Temujin character mentions that he faked his own death so that he could return later and conquer a new empire. That makes so, sense, yeah. Although the, the empire he conquered originally wasn't too shabby. No. So, now, as you mentioned, Chinggis is considered the founder of the empire, with his uh, reign starting around 1204, and he formally took the title of Khan in 1206. Correct. Uh, it wasn't easy, though. At several points before this, and you alluded to this a little bit, Chinggis attempted to build a power base only to be defeated or betrayed, oftentimes by family members. Tends to be the way when it comes to dynasties too because even if you look at like china or japan and those dynasties there was a lot of well my brother's ahead of me so you know oh, yeah. get him between the ribs yeah and we had that in the western kingdoms as well oh yeah absolutely especially england you look at england you look at the roman empire too it was just as bad yes one of the biggest things chingus did that led to the formation and power of the empire was to impose a military hierarchy that superseded the tribal organization that had existed before Okay. And you talked a, touched on this a little bit where you said that he was more concerned for his soldiers' welfare than for enriching the aristocrats. Right. And that this was completely unheard of. Chinggis said, and basically enforced it at the point of a sword, we are doing it my way. You don't get to have your little niche and you have your little niche over there where everybody's doing it the same way. In a sense, he created a bureaucracy that allowed the growth of the empire since everyone was doing the same things the same way according to the same laws. Because he very quickly realized he's conquered too much land. He can't be everywhere. So he just said, okay, everybody's doing this. And that way, no matter where you went, everybody was doing the same thing. This format would actually be end up being a model for how the British Empire established their rule in their colonies and how most of Western educational systems were set up from the 16th to the 20th centuries. So as a teacher, I just have to say, in no seriousness at all, thanks for the red tape, Chinggis. <laughs> Next in time and significance come Ching comes Chinggis' son, Ogadai, referred to as the Great Khan, because he took the title Ka Khan, which literally translates as Great Khan or Khan of Khans, 
signifying that the others called Khan in their regions were subordinate to him. It was kind of like, if you are in charge of an area, you're the Khan, the leader, or whatever. Right. And then Ogadai is the boss of all the bosses. Oddly enough, his father Chinggis never wanted to use that title, even though they kept trying to press it on it. Kakan or just Khan? Kakan. Okay. Yeah, he accepted the title of Chinggis Khan, but he didn't want to be the great Khan. Okay. He just wanted to be Khan, the leader. So maybe little Ogadai had some daddy issues or needed a little self-esteem boost to come out of his father's it's, shadow. It's possible. Most people don't know about Ogadai. They know about Chinggis. They know about Kublai. But Ogadai is significant because he pulled off something no one had ever done before, nor has done since. He successfully invaded Russia in the winter. This victory, however, had the unfortunate side effect of driving some of the Mongol subjects to flee into Hungary, which irritated one of the lesser Khans, causing a little strife in the empire. Ogadai overcame this by involving the offended Khan in the assault on Poland and Hungary, which led to a huge victory for the Mongols. Ogadai was also responsible for the upgrade of Karakorum, which Chinggis had established as just a military outpost, into a modern city and the capital of the empire. And if you watch the Expedition Unknown episode, Josh Gates actually goes to the ruins of Karakorum. Okay. Because scholars have uncovered records of Chinggis's funeral procession, procession leaving Karakorum and going to whatever the site of his tomb was. Yeah, I always understood that it was just somewhere in the middle of the desert so that it wouldn't take long for the winds and everything to you know take away any traces of where he was placed. Right. And there are other reports that he had entire cavalry units stampede back and forth across it to obliterate the tracks of the wagons and everything. So it was a, a pretty good episode. They've actually found a site on one of the holy mountains Okay. that uh, they were able to map by drone because they weren't allowed to... Uh, uh, excavation crews aren't allowed to dig up there, but okay. they used drones to do 3d aerial mapping all right and when you uh, superimpose a computer overlay on the terrain and use it to like strip away um, soil and everything they found one site that is remarkably rectangular and engineered okay. if you account for the buildup of several hundred years of dirt and grass being blown by the wind so they might have found a site or a place that was built to be his tomb but because it's revered by the mongols and they want to preserve their culture and history probably no one's ever going to be allowed to dig in it right because they're they're going to say chinggis didn't want to be found right for for lack of better better phrase you know leave lion dogs lie mm -hmm. and it, it just kind of shows you how significant he is still in that culture mm -hmm. that i mean it's but not just More that than culture. 900, well, 800 years later, and they're still following his law. And it's it's not only that culture. I mean, you go out on the streets anywhere in the United States and you say, do you know who... Well, okay, we can do it two ways. You can say, do you know who Chinggis Khan is? And nobody, and somebody's going to go, well, maybe he's related to Genghis mm -hmm. kind of thing. Or if you say, who's Genghis Khan? They're going to know who you're talking about. Exactly. They might not know a whole lot about him. Or that he used to be called Temujin or any of that. Right. But they, the the idea of this Mongol warlord and, you know, and Genghis, 
I mean, because there are other ones. I mean, I had I have heard of Kublai Khan, but I don't know if that's as widely known as Genghis would be. Right. I had never hold, heard of Obadai. Ogadai, yep. Ogadai. I had never heard of him until I started doing this. Right. I, I knew Genghis. I knew Kubla. Yeah. And that was it. And as you mentioned, Ogadai's death in 1242 almost spelled the end of the empire because its most successful general, Subadai, had a massive army poised to invade more of Europe. But the likely successor to the throne, Goyuk, was very opposed to Subadai. And Subadai was afraid that he was not only going to be recalled, but that he'd be assassinated. And Subadai and his army were poised on the border of Hungary, ready to just sweep across what is present-day Germany, France, uh, Belgium, the Netherlands, possibly even up to England. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's funny. Well, how would things have been different if Ogadai hadn't passed away? Right. You know, would would we all be speaking Mongol now? It's possible. Or at least would all of Europe be speaking Mongol now? Right, because keep in mind, this is coming into the early part of what we call the Middle Ages of Europe. It's well before the Renaissance. Right. Now, granted, the, the Mongols were interested in education, but they might not have been as interested in the arts and sciences as what we got in Italy and Spain and France and England during the Renaissance. Right. And, I mean, this was before, at this point, everybody thought that was the world. You had Europe and Asia. Right. You know, and I think Africa was known by this time. Yes, because uh, the Carthaginians were in northern Africa and they fought the Roman Empire. Right. So, but the New World had not been discovered yet. Nope. Uh, well, the Vikings had been there, maybe. But nobody really knew about the Vikings right. except for the Irish and the English. <laughs> right. But you know what I'm saying is the New World had not been discovered. Greenland had not been discovered. South America had not been discovered. So... It, it's interesting to think of how it would have changed had, you know, something as simple as, you know, uh, Ogladai not getting the flu, basically, and dying. Right. He lives one more year. Subadai invades Europe. Right. Yeah. Who it's, knows it's, what happens exactly. next? Exactly. Would they have gotten further than they did, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Subadai has this army. Obadai dies. Goyuk looks like he's going to take the throne. So Subadai halts his invasion consolidates his position, and moves back into the empire. Fortunately, Goyuk died soon after, which prevented civil war, but also meant that the Mongols had lost their opportunity to advance into Western Europe. The next famous Khan, and possibly the most famous other than Chinggis, was Kublai. Now, I keep running across two separate spellings of this. One is K-U-B-L-A, and one is K-U-B-L-A-I. And that's the one I'm more familiar with, is with the eye. Right. The one without the eye was made famous by Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem, Kubla Khan, also referred to as, sometimes as Xanadu. Okay. And I'll get to the poem in a little bit. All right. So, Kublai took over after several years of bloody civil wars between rival claimants to the throne, as well as some fracturing as to what constituted the Mongol Empire. Because some of the Khans in their little enclaves were saying, yeah, we're good. We're not part of your empire anymore. We're our own little country. And he'd march in an army and go, no, you're part of my empire. Okay, fine. But how long does that really last if you've got this this con of this area or this state or whatever you want to call it, who really doesn't want to be part of the the greater, you know, dynasty? And he's like, sure, yeah, I'm on your side. But then really doesn't do anything. It doesn't help you to have these people that aren't 
producing anything. Right. And I think one of the reasons that Kublai didn't engage in too much repression among the established empire was because, as you mentioned, he was focused on China. Chinggis, Obadiah, a lot of the other ones, they were like, expand everywhere. Right. Kublai was, I want China. Maybe he just really liked egg rolls. Maybe. So. Maybe he liked Chinese women. That's entirely possible. He took the Chinese dynastic name Yuan, which you mentioned, and moved the capital from Karakorum to what is modern-day Beijing. He actually built what became Peking and then Beijing. Okay. So he incorporated many aspects of Chinese culture into the administration of the empire as well. And many scholars consider this period to be both the high point of the Mongol Empire and the start of the, the really significant Chinese Empire. There had been dynasties in China before, but infusing the existing Chinese culture with the military might and expansionist know-how and drive of the Mongols really got the Chinese dynastic empire building going. One thing that I find interesting is that one of the divides in the Mongol Empire was one of faith. You talked about how one of Chinggis's principal laws was the acceptance of all faiths. Right. And what was really interesting was where the faiths shook out. So the Khanates to the west, closest to Europe, were mostly Muslim. That makes sense. Well, no, they're they're farther away from Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Well, I get that, that, but they would have passed through all those Muslim countries on their way. I suppose. I mean, I, they, they picked it up and picked up some of the people with them. Right. So. I mean, we look at it and we go, yeah, it took them, you know, 10 years or whatever to move from here to here. But in that 10 years, they're living amongst these people. Right. And just because they took them over, but, you know, Chinggis says, hey, whatever you guys want, as far as religion goes, do your thing. So they're going to start you know, seeing that. And since they didn't get very deep into Europe, I think that's probably why you're seeing more Muslim than Christianity. Well, in those Khanates, in the ones to the West. Right. And uh, they mostly focused on attacking Europe and attacking Christians. Which is another good reason that they'd be Muslims. Right. The Khanates more to the East, who are closer to China and to the Middle East countries of what now we know as Iraq and Saudi Arabia, the, the core area of Islam, mm -hmm. were mostly Christian. Really? Yes. And they spent most of their time attacking centers of Islam, like Mecca and Medina. And uh, you talked about the sea, the sack of Baghdad. Yeah. So it was one of the most famous battles of the, the reign of Kubla. Hundreds of thousands of Muslims were killed when they breached the city walls. But almost every report says that the Christian inhabitants of Baghdad were safely escorted out of the city. That's actually very interesting to me. The fact that if you were to look at a map and you, you map those two out, you would almost go, well, that should be flipped. Exactly. You would think that the more Christian elements would be closer to Europe, closer to, because at this time we're before <laughs> Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, so we still have Rome and the Vatican. Right. So you, you would think that the westernmost Mongols would be more Christian because those are their neighbors. Right. Whereas the eastern ones who are closer to Mecca, closer to centers of Islam, would be Muslim. 
Right. And it, it's opposite, in fact, which was one of the things that led to the fracturing of the Empire. That, and that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That, that That's very interesting to me. That's not something I ran across. I, like I said, I did more of a high-level right. look at it. But that's very interesting. I, I hope there's more in there. Or not really. Not too much, because that, that kind of... Kublai's focus on China led to a lot of his subordinates just very quietly kind of like walking out the back door with their countries. So, and to a certain extent, he didn't notice. Well, it's that it's that tunnel vision thing. Right. Um, Kublai was very fixated, not just on China, but the rest of Asia. He tried to conquer what's now Vietnam. He tried to conquer what's now Korea. He even launched two naval assaults of Japan. Really? Yes. Mongols apparently don't make good sailors. <laughs> Must be trying to get all those little horses onto the boat so that when they land, they can form their cavalry back up again. Whereas Japan, being an island nation, has always had a strong naval tradition. Right. And so Japan handily crushed the Mongol Navy. Okay. That Both makes, times. Yeah, that really does make sense, though. Mm-hmm. And then, as I mentioned, Kublai survives to this day through the work of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, whose poem, Kublai Khan... And it has the, the subtitle, Or a Vision in a Dream, a Fragment. And it goes, In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round, and there were gardens bright with sinuous rills, where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree. And here were forests ancient as the hills, enfolding sunny spots of greenery. But, oh, that deep romantic chasm which slanted down the green hill athwart a cedarn cover, a savage place as holy and enchanted as e'er beneath a waning moon was haunted by woman wailing for her demon lover. And from this chasm with ceaseless turmoil seething, as if this earth in fast thick pants were breathing, a mighty fountain momentarily was forced, amid whose swift half-intermitted burst huge fragments vaulted like rebounding hail or chaffy grain beneath the thresher's flail. And mid these dancing rocks, at once and ever, it flung up momently the sacred river. Five miles meandering with a mazy motion, through wood and dale the sacred river ran, then reached the caverns measureless to man, and sank in tumult to a lifeless ocean. And midst this tumult Kubla heard from afar ancestral voices prophesying war. The shadow of the dome of pleasure floated midway on the waves, where was heard the mingled measure from the fountain and the caves. It was a miracle of rare device, a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. A damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once I saw. It was an Abyssinian maid, and on her dulcimer she played, singing of Mount Abora. Could I revive within me her symphony and song, to such a deep delight twould win me, that with music loud and long I would build that dome in air, that sunny dome, those caves, caves of ice, and all who heard should see them there. And all should cry, Beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair. Weave a circle round him thrice, and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honeydew hath fed, and drunk the milk of paradise. There's some interesting stuff in the poem. And as you know, I'm an English teacher, so yay poetry, yay imagery and symbolism. (laughs) And there's a, a couple of things in there that jump out at me. One of them, again, going back to the Josh Gates episode of Expedition Unknown, when they're searching, and this time they're not searching for the tomb of Chinggis Khan, but they're searching for Shangri-La, 
which is oftentimes referred to as Xanadu. Right, right. And it, it's a holy place in the mountains. And a lot of people think that the poem Kublai Khan talking about Xanadu is also talking about Shangri-La. One of the things they found is one of the purported sites that they're actually able to get to has these caves measureless to man. It's this cavern system that extends deep into the mountain that even today has not been thoroughly mapped because it's so extensive. In some places, it's very treacherous. Just walking in them would set up a vibration that could collapse the cavern. Okay. So you have that. And then the closing stanza, fed on honeydew and drunk the milk of paradise. That particular imagery is very prevalent in the Quran of Islam. Okay. So which leads back to the fact that the Mongols ostensibly practiced freedom of religion, and a good many of them were Muslim. Okay. So it's kind of interesting that that would still resonate through to the time of Coleridge. Yeah. You know, and I'm not familiar with Coleridge. I've I've heard of Xanadu. Um, I've heard of the poem. Mm -hmm. This is the first time I've heard it. Now, have you heard of the Olivia Newton-John movie, Xanadu, with John Travolta? Yes. <laughs> well, let's not talk about that. <laughs> no, but basically, the term Xanadu, through partly the Coleridge poem and partly through common usage, has come to mean any type of unattainable, perfect place. Kind of like Shangri-La. Right. Shangri-La is a place of perfect peace where war cannot enter. You know, and and it's interesting, and I think the last thing we kind of want, I want, I kind, I kind of want to touch on is the use of Genghis Khan, and I'm gonna say Genghis Khan because in in American theater and and that kind of stuff, you're gonna see him as Genghis Khan, but where he's been used in, you know, in in modern times, and the thing that pops into my head, of course, is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yep. Where they go on a, a trip through history and they pick up all these people, but they pick up Genghis Khan. And when they get to Genghis, he's sitting on this this throne of, like, pelts and stuff. And he's got women all around him. And he's chewing on this big-ass leg of something. Right. You know, and he's supposed to be this really, this war-based guy. And, and they kind of use that in the movie, but it is a comedy, so they don't make him too evil or violent. But I, I, I do think that it was really funny that they had Genghis Khan on the skateboard with the uh, the football shoulder pads and helmet on and a, and a baseball bat. That has got to be, you know, if Genghis Khan were alive and he saw that as a depiction of himself, I think he might start killing again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know of any other places off the top of your head in, in movies or TV that they've used Genghis? Apart from that one and the, the one I talked about earlier with the shadow. Right. Not really. Most movie representations from that part of the world have focused more on Attila. True, Attila the Hun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, I've watched a lot of documentaries about Genghis Khan uh, because I find the way he ran such a large thing or how he started such a large uh, dynasty, for lack of a better word. Because, I mean, basically, and, and if you're of Mongol or, or Mongolian or uh, Chinese descent, I don't mean this in any in a bad way, but Mongolia is pretty much China. I mean, they're, they're kind of the same landmass, same area of the world. So they have very similar uh, features and, and body types and that kind of stuff. But to you know, start from Mongolia, which to this day is still a big place. Yes. Very sparsely populated. It is. It's kind of like Montana. Yes. <laughs> Must be that whole starting with mountain. Hey, I never thought about that. But anyway, so 
I don't know. I don't really have anything else on this. Uh, it's a little bit shorter than our last one, which is probably good. Yes. <laughs> we got to keep you on your toes. We don't want you expecting the same thing every time. Right. We're going to wrap this one up. You know, we appreciate you listening. And uh, if you want to reach out to us, there's a few ways you can do that. You can send us an email at wanttohearsomethinginteresting at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, um, actually in two places now. Uh, we are officially part of the Point of Insanity Network. You can find us at POI Network. You can also find us on the page we've had for a while now at Want to Hear Something Interesting. So you can find our podcast in either one of those places. Um, you can also find us on Podbean. Any last thoughts, Scott? Nope. I think that's about it. Okay. Like the, the Mongol Empire, we are done. We've come to an end. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next month. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.